Said, She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. Jennifer Lawless may be best known as an academic expert on the topic of gender and politics. She's currently a professor at the American University, but this fall will join the faculty of the University of Virginia. Jen is the author or co-author of five significant books on the topic of gender and politics. She's also written extensively on political engagement by millennials. She's the director of the Women in Politics Institute, which has actually grown into an important initiative that works to address some of the themes coming out of her research. Jen knows firsthand what it's like to run for elected office, and she brings that important personal perspective to her work as well. Jen, welcome to She Said, She Said. We're so happy to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. So many of our listeners are probably familiar with your work, but they may not know how you ended up in this field in the first place. Where did your passion for gender and politics come from? It really started when I was in high school, and I was in 11th grade, and Clarence Thomas had just been nominated to the Supreme Court. And I was a political junkie even then, and I remember rushing home after school to watch the confirmation hearings. And it was during that time that I saw how the all-male Judiciary Committee treated Anita Hill when she wasn't being nominated for anything. She was just a witness coming forward to raise some allegations of sexual harassment that I realized something seemed fundamentally wrong with our Congress. How was it possible that we could have all of these pretty old white men grilling a woman who wasn't nominated? And at that point, I became really cognizant for the first time, I think, of gender dynamics in politics. And that's what I would say was the first time that I realized maybe this is something I should focus on. Did student government politics interest you at the time? Were you involved in politics beyond sort of your interest in what was happening in the world? I wasn't, but I was always really, I always loved social studies classes and economics classes and government classes and sort of civic engagement in general. And so those were the topics that I found most compelling. Those were the papers I most liked to write. And my parents always talked about politics at home. So I never felt like politics wasn't something that was open to me or that shouldn't be open to women more broadly. And it was no surprise, therefore, that when I went to college, I became a political science major and I started learning even more about this. And it, at that point, we had just seen the year of the woman and women for the first time were still only five or six percent of the United States Congress, but they had represented these major increases. So I felt like there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. So you actually ran for Congress. You were already an academic, uh, but you threw your hat into the ring to run for Congress. What was that experience like and how did it uh, inform your trajectory ultimately? It was amazing. To this day, it remains the best experience of my life and the most meaningful, but it was not a traditional path. So I had just started at Brown University as an assistant professor. It was the end of my second year there. And there was an incumbent in that congressional district who I thought was completely out of sync with his constituents. And on issues that I cared most about, he was particularly off. But he was an incumbent. And He was a Democrat, and it looked like the Democrats were going to take back the House of Representatives, so there was no way that anybody was going to run against him. And I just thought, something seems wrong with this. We need better representation. We need people that are really going to be passionate about the issues that matter most. And so I did what a lot of people thought at the time was commit career suicide, and I threw my hat into the ring, and I have no regrets whatsoever. I lost the race, but 
it was more competitive than anybody would have thought. And I was able to learn so much about people and about government and about what people are looking for in their elected officials, as well as the hangups they have about why they might not want to get involved. And there's no question that it ultimately informed research that I did after that. But I remember at the time people saying, oh, she's just doing it to write another book. And I can still say to this day, it's way easier to write books than it is to run for Congress. <laughs> so you left your job in order I did to not. do this. Oh, you did not. No. So I am not independently wealthy. I had no money. And running a congressional campaign is a full-time job, but you also have to pay the rent and eat. Mm-hmm. And so I was still a full-time professor at Brown. Wow. I would go in at 7 o'clock in the morning. I would teach. I would try to get research done. And then I would be at the campaign office by 1 or 2 in the afternoon and stay there until midnight for 17 months. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So was the university supportive of your jumping in and and doing this? Because a lot of times that can create conflicts for an organization. Yeah, I would say no. Um, (laughs) I mean, there were some people that thought that it was great, and a lot of the students were really excited. The administration, I think, initially thought that this was going to be tilting at windmills. And did they really want one of their professors out there getting 3 or 4% of the vote? And as the campaign progressed and as it became clear that we were being taken quite seriously, not only by voters, but also by the media, both local and national, the administration, I think, warmed to the idea a little bit. And then when I wound up getting almost 40% of the vote, they were more than happy to parade me around at alumni events to talk about the great nexus between you know, practical politics and political science. So at the end of the day, there were certainly no concerns. But I think at the beginning, they kind of breathed a sigh of like, what's going to happen. Yeah. And you, you were how old when you did this? 30. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the most common misperceptions that you hear people say related to women running for office? So the biggest one has to do with the media and this general sense that women are not able to garner media coverage, that the coverage they get looks fundamentally different and worse than that which men receive, and that really all reporters care about are women's appearance and their family status. And so I think all of these myths are grounded in a reality, but a reality from times past. So in the 1980s and 1990s, when women really were a novelty, it was true that they were less likely to get covered when they ran for office. It was true that there were stories about them running as women for the first time. And to some extent, it was true that they were covered as more competent in terms of women's issues, Mm -hmm. like issues that relate to women, families, and children. But it's no longer a novelty to see women run. Women are only 20% of the U.S. Congress, but in almost every single congressional district in the last 20 years, there's been a female candidate. And so my research with Danny Hayes has found that in the most recent set of elections, so dating back to about 2010 at least, when women run for Congress, they receive the same amount of media coverage that men receive, and it looks exactly the same. They're just as likely to be described as strong, competent leaders. They're just as likely to be described as having or lacking a sense of empathy and integrity. And the statistic I like best is that 96% of men and 95% of women who run for Congress receive no mention of what they look like or what they're wearing whatsoever. Hmm. So a lot of these myths, I think, are also because we look at national politics and we assume that that's what it's like. But Mm. we have 520,000 elective offices in this country. So you're talking about sort of the spectrum of women running across the... So we looked at Congress, right? And so if we're not finding any of these kinds of gender differences at the congressional level, it would be way more unlikely to find them at the state legislative level or in municipal races. Mm. 
It's just that what happens in presidential politics tends to affect our view of what we assume it will be like everywhere else. And so that's really good news because for the most part, women really are treated fairly. The perception that they're not is one of the things that holds them back from throwing their hat into the ring. And rightfully so. If you think you're going to be treated unfairly, why should you do it? So to the extent that we can get this message out that systematically there doesn't seem to be any sort of media bias, I think that could go a long way in encouraging women to give it a shot because they're not going to be facing right off the bat an unlevel playing field. Do you find political journalists to be open to this messaging? And, you know, are there conversations taking place in the way that women candidates are covered? On a one-on-one basis, I have found them to be incredibly receptive because a lot of the time they'll call and they'll ask me questions that are grounded in the assumption that it's going to be harder for women or that their coverage is different. And then when I push back a little and ask them, well, when they've covered congressional races or when they've covered mayoral candidacies, have they treated men and women differently? And across the board, they all say, no, of course not. And so I think just cueing them into the fact that they're pretty typical and so are their colleagues. There are journalistic norms of fairness and balance and focusing on the competitiveness of the race, which is often driven by partisanship, not gender. Mm-hmm. And and they buy it. And so I, you know, it's slow and steady, but I do think that over time we're seeing more and more thought pieces about how women actually are doing much better in large part because the media are covering them the same way. Hmm. That's so interesting. So interesting. So in your first book, which you wrote in 2005, yes, right? Um, it Takes a Candidate was the title. You looked at specific tangible evidence related to gender differences in political interest and ambition. Oh, this was before. Yes. Okay, this was before. So what surprised you most? So we did a national survey of potential candidates, mm-hmm. right? So these were lawyers, business leaders, educators, and political activists. And we asked them, have you ever considered running for office? We thought, Richard Fox did this book, wrote this book with me. He's at Loyola Marymount University now. We expected that women were going to be a little bit less likely than men to say they were interested in running for office. But the men and women we were surveying and interviewing on paper looked exactly the same. So these were high-level professionals who had already achieved the utmost levels of success in their fields. And these were all male-dominated fields. So we thought that if we covered a relatively small gender gap in interest in running for office, that would still be something substantial because this was a best-case scenario. We were stunned that women were a third less likely than men ever to have the thought occur to them. And then we were even more shocked by the reasons why. And so we, we uncovered two fundamental reasons. The first was that women were less likely than men to consider themselves qualified to run for office, even when they looked exactly the same on paper. Right. And women were less likely than men, even though they ran in the same circles, to ever receive the suggestion to run for office. And so, you know, study after study was finding that when women ran, they did just as well as men. We thought, oh, my gosh, we really have a ton of evidence here to suggest that we don't need to look at that phase of the process anymore. It's all about candidate emergence. And it's all about what's keeping women from getting on the ballot in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then the parallels, of course, that have uh, come about with research into why women take risks, why women go for it, why women who are your students raise their hand and offer an opinion. The parallels, I think, are incredibly stark. Did you did you did you expect that? I mean, is that a big surprise to you? We were stunned. Again, we it wasn't even like we planned to have this be a major finding. I'm thrilled that we put on the questionnaire how qualified do you think you are to run for office because it turned out that then set out a larger research agenda. But I mean, in some ways, I was a graduate student sitting in my office at Stanford and we wrote that question. I mean, we lucked out. But yeah, no, it's it's shocking. And I now see that in all of these other patterns. I mean, I 
see it in my classrooms where I'll ask a question and a female student will raise her hand and say, well, I'm not really sure, but I think that maybe the author meant X and I don't really remember, but I think maybe on page 74 she said dot, dot, dot. And a guy will literally raise his hand and say, I didn't do the reading, but it seems to me that, <laughs> right? And, and I think that that epitomizes the whole thing, right? right? Like, So that happens when you're in college or in high school. It happens when you get into your first job. We know that there are gender differences in salary negotiations. It happens when you think about running for office. It happens when you perceive whether you've actually been recruited to run. We've done interviews with these people, and women will say, oh, well, the mayor suggested that I run for office, but I don't think he meant it. And then there will be a male potential candidate, and he'll say, the bartender said I'd really make a good candidate. I'm thinking about running for governor, right? Like, these are not – these are two completely different conceptions of reality. Right. And it's these perceptions that wind up driving behavior. And the fact that we see it in every realm and in every discipline, I think, suggests that that really needs to be where we focus the correctives. So – Jen, you've been working in this field and doing research for over a decade. What has changed in the past 10 plus years as you've been looking at this? Do you see, I mean, are we making progress? I mean, the, the, the numbers aren't ticking up the way that we would like, but do you see things that are changing? I do. In terms of political ambition, the gender gap is roughly the same size now as it was when we did our first survey in 2001. So that's an area where we haven't seen that much change. But if we look at this year, there are a record number of female candidates. We have several hundred more running than we usually have. Mm -hmm. Granted, we have several hundred more men running also because there (laughs) seems to be a lot of energy on the Democratic side. But those raw numbers shouldn't be underestimated in terms of their overall importance. Mm -hmm. More than that, though, I would say we have more women in politics, which means that we can explain more about their behavior. When I first started doing this work, there were a handful of women in Congress. And so when you were trying to generalize or say anything systematic, everything was sort of left to the vagaries of a random female senator from Maine, for example, right? Like if her behavior was different, that would skew everything. We're now at the point where, given that we have 100 women serving in the U.S. Congress, we can begin to draw comparisons and really understand what's driving behavior and the extent to which sex and gender matter or partisanship matters. And so those raw numbers matter. The other thing I would say that has changed in a positive direction is that there's no evidence of gender stereotyping on the part of voters anymore. This is not to say that there aren't some people out there that are still card-carrying sexists, but survey after survey finds that Voters really evaluate male and female candidates the same way. They care about whether there's a D or an R in front of that candidate's name, not the presence or absence of a Y chromosome in their DNA. And that has changed significantly from when I started doing this work. That, that must be very gratifying. I think so. I mean, everybody talks about how partisan polarization has all of these ills associated with it. But an upside of polarization is that it's rendered the sex of a candidate almost moot. And that has given people an opportunity to see women govern and to see women campaign and to become more familiar with the assets that they can bring to the electoral environment. Your collaboration with uh, Richard Fox and Danny Hayes on a number of your books I would think writing a book in and of itself would be pretty challenging. But then when you add on you know, the challenges, right? It's a blessing and a curse, I imagine, collaborating with another person. In this case, you're collaborating with men. So let's talk about sort of how the collaborations came about and then what impact having a male point of view on these topics makes a difference. 
Right. So there are two very different sets of collaborations. One is entirely dysfunctional, and one I would say is far more functional. What so you, so we, can, we can start with the dysfunctional <laughs> okay. one. Um, so Richard and I have now been working together for almost 20 years. I met him when I was an undergraduate. I took his Intro to American Politics class no at kidding. Union. Wow. Um, he was a baby, and I was a baby. It was his first year teaching. Um, and after I graduated, I continued to be interested in this, and I went to Stanford, and I was interested in doing a lot of the same kind of work that he was starting to do as well. And, you know, working with him has been great because I think we're both incredibly ambitious. And so the projects that we're able to take on and the way that we're able to think about how we want to assess political ambition or measure it, we're able to do it because there are two of us. And I don't think that either one of us could have alone been able to embark on projects of this scope. The dysfunctional thing is that uh, we talk, I don't know, four times a day when we're writing and we exchange drafts on a regular basis. And he thinks that I'm impossible and that I'm a perfectionist. And I am. Um, really? A perfectionist? A perfectionist. As a woman, that's so strange. And I think that he... <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that he's not... Um, He's not obsessive compulsive and so that that's a liability, right? And so there are a lot of slammed phones and there are a lot of snarky emails. And my bet is that we'll continue to do this for another 20 years because both of us have generally the same view of the role of gender in society and the importance of the work that we're doing. And we feel like it's okay to have, you know, constant spats if ultimately we're able to produce results that... Are really important. Um, the other thing I will say is that I think part of the reason that we get along so well is he's one of the funniest people I've ever met. And so we don't take the work too seriously. We take the results and the outcome very seriously, but the process of writing a book is crazy to begin with. Um, and so, you know, we've become very, very close friends throughout this process. And it's just one of these things where I can't imagine that either of us would ever not be working on something together. The work with Danny grew out of uh, a research project that he was working on. I was the editor of Politics and Gender at the time, and he had just come to AU, and he had submitted a manuscript. And the manuscript was great, and it got accepted, but it was also somewhat limited. He was looking at gender stereotyping, and he was looking at the 2006 Senate races. And we started talking more about it, and we thought, you know, if we could replicate this for a broader set of races and have a more systematic way of looking at how voters are viewing candidates and how the media are viewing candidates, that could be really an important next step. Because we now have a pretty good understanding of why women don't run, what happens when they actually do. And so his office was down the hall from mine, and we would have these loud conversations with each other, like yelling. Neither of us would get up. Um, there was one day where this woman who had an, an office in the hallway came into the hallway, and she just yelled, would you two just shut up? And we felt like, we must write a book. Um, and move your offices closer together. Move our offices closer together. It turns out that he wound up moving his office to a different university, but whatever. Um, and so at, literally ever since that day, we've been working on these kinds of projects. And he's great also because women in politics was not his initial field. So with Richard, he and I had very, very similar substantive interests. And his dissertation had been about gender and politics and his work up until our collaboration had been as well. Danny started out as a journalist. He was a newspaper reporter in Texas. And then his dissertation and most of his work had been about media and politics in general. So it was a nice opportunity to blend the media side with the gender side. Mm -hmm. And it was just an incredibly easy collaboration. So we wrote this first article and we wrote the first book and now we're working on a book about local news and it's just very, very sane and easy and there's no hanging up, but there's also still a lot of laughter. 
I want to go back to something that you said, this notion of perfectionism. In particular, as it relates to this collaboration, I mean, perfection, all the literature says, is one of the worst things that women can do to themselves, and yet it is incredibly common. We know this. We're much more aware of this phenomenon. So how do you think about perfection, and has this collaboration, no matter how dysfunctional <laughs> slash successful it's been, has it made you think differently about your own perfectionism? It makes me think about it. Um, but I mean, let me give you an example. So there have been numerous times, and Richard will be the first one to itemize them all, where I've said, you know what, this is ridiculous. I think we should not do it. It's not going to, we should just stop right now. That was my feeling when we were having a hard time writing a proposal for a National Science Foundation grant, which we wound up getting, and we received more than $300,000 to fund our research. That was my reaction when we started writing the book about why young people don't want to run for office, and we wound up getting a contract, and it was a trade book. That has been my reaction now. We're working on um, putting together a draft for an American politics textbook. And he's the calmer one. It's like, you know what? It's 95% fine. Like, we are going to have time to revise. And so I'm far more cognizant of it. I'm not sure that I've become any less of a perfectionist. But I do realize that insane things come out of my mouth when I'm in, like, perfectionist mode. So, So I guess the way that I would think about it is that my gut reaction is still to always go there. But now, maybe an hour later, I can step back and see that if anybody was listening to the conversation that we just had or the thought that I just had, they would have major concerns about my mental health. So so, it, so it's sort of like training that voice inside your head. But you've had a colleague who's a mentor to some degree, right? But you've had somebody who's basically pointed out to you, of course you can do it. Of course this will work. Of course we should try it. As opposed to you saying, okay, it has to be perfect and we can't. We can't move forward without Right. That. Although I would say that the the thing that's even crazier about all of this is he's pretty much of a perfectionist too. It's just, you know, at let's say 90% instead <laughs> uh-huh. of 100, right? So the whole thing is kind of when I step back and I think about it, like there there's no doubt that this is going to work, right? It's just a matter of, well, how perfect does it have to be before we show it to anybody? Or how perfect does it have to be before we submit it? Or is it worth submitting it if it's only 96% great? And those are the kinds of things where I never hold my students to those standards. I never hold anybody else to those standards. And although I know I shouldn't hold myself to those standards, it's very, very difficult when you're writing or when you're thinking about putting together a proposal not to. And, you know, it's helpful when you're collaborating with somebody else because you don't have 100% control and discretion over decision making. And I would say that part of the reason that we've been as successful as we have been is because in a lot of ways he's a reality check for what's way beyond acceptable and feasible. So how has the self-awareness around your own perfection informed your work with your students, particularly your female students? I think that's a really good question because it really depends. I think that this generation has grown up knowing that it's okay not to be a perfectionist. So I can say, so I've been teaching for 15 years now. When I started those first few years at Brown, the number of crying female students in my office because they didn't do exceptionally well or because they received an A- minus on a paper instead of an A was just sort of happening on a daily basis. And over time, I really do think that we're getting to the point where the expectations are different. And 
people are learning that if you get a B, that's okay. And that doesn't mean that you're never going to get a job. And if you did the best that you can and you're balancing a lot of different responsibilities, that's okay. And life is about choices. Sometimes you're going to choose to do really well on an assignment. Sometimes you're going to have to make a choice to make that your second best thing. And I've seen a lot of progress on that front. The other thing I would note is that I've tried to engage in things in my own life where I'm not going to be very good at them to try and um, chip away at this perfectionism. So running is one of them. I will never win a race. I will never be in the top 50% of somebody running a race. But I still do it in large part because for me, I now set the bar at crossing the finish line. So I've run two very, very slow marathons. And at no point was I ever disappointed. So, you know, activities like that, I think, are helpful for me because they make me realize that not only am I not the best, I am almost the worst. And I can still go to bed at night and feel like I accomplished something. So I think leaving what it is that you do, whether it be your discipline or your job, and being able to engage in something outside of that and not necessarily being as successful can go a long way at curbing some of those perfectionist tendencies. Mm-hmm. So in addition to that, in challenging yourself and recognizing that you're taking on things that are really hard, that you're probably not going to succeed at, which is okay, and you keep plugging away at it, what about those things that you tackle where you just fall flat? It's something that you are so passionate about and care about, and it you fail. You, you have a big setback. What do you do in those moments to pull yourself back up? I cry a lot. <laughs> I mean, I not and I don't mean that in a sad way, but I I mean like I have never been one of these people that feels like, "Oh, it's not okay to cry." I cry at work all the time. I cry in my office, I cry at home, I cry on the phone, I still call my mom and cry. And it's never over anything that that's that's, you know, so dramatic or so upsetting. It's just I I feel like a completely normal release. And I've never been embarrassed by that and I've never been upset by that. And in a lot of ways, it's just this cleansing thing and I then move on. And so I would say that when I hit a setback or when I fall flat, I just kind of deal with it immediately and then try to move on. I don't wallow. Um, And I think that's maybe one way to move forward. But my friends will tell you and my colleagues will tell you also that I feel like when something happens, I can't say, well, let's set this aside for 24 hours and think about it. I need to have the debriefing right then. I need to yell and scream and cry and get upset. And, you know, and then the next day I'm back to normal and ready to completely move on. So if, if, if listeners heard Jen's cell phone ringing, it was actually Richard Fox. So he, he knew that we were talking about it. Okay, I want to I dig a bit more into this. You said something that I think is really important. You cry it out. You get it out of your system. You don't wallow in it or ruminate, to use the more technical term. Is there any other sort of practice or advice, or how do you keep from ruminating? That is a what tends to be an inherent thing for many women. Men do it too, but women tend to can do it to a, the point of debilitation sometimes, and it really can impact your ability to take risks and to keep moving forward. So what is it that you do to keep yourself from ruminating beyond the big cry, which clearly is very, very cleansing for right. you, right? And I, hey, if it works for you, do it. No, crying and cookies. And also, I would say, <laughs> um, I always have multiple important things on my to-do list. So I'm never working on just one project. I'm always working on at least two. And what that means is that when you hit a setback with one or a pothole or complete devastation, you don't have the luxury of being able to spend all of your time thinking about that failure because there's something else on the agenda that requires your work so that there can be another success. And that was advice that I had received, I don't even remember from whom, but in graduate school, which was that you should never have only one thing on your plate. 
not only because of the failure potential, but also because then what happens when you succeed? You don't want to ever start with a blank slate again. You want to always have the next project underway. And I think that has helped me um, emotionally and mentally as well as academically over the course of the last 20 years. That's great advice. Okay, let's shift gears and talk a bit about the Women in Politics uh, Institute. And in the interest of disclosure, I should tell our listeners that I actually teach occasionally as an adjunct, which I'm delighted to do. So, Jen, tell us about the Women in Politics Institute. What is it? The Institute's mission is very clear. It's to close the gender gap in political leadership. And we do that in several different ways. The first is that we have a certificate program, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level, where students can basically get a credential in women policy and political leadership. And to do that, they take 15 credits worth of women in politics related courses, including weekend classes from practitioners like the classes that you teach. Mm The second thing that we do is run a leadership training program called We Lead for women who are in their first political careers. And we define political career pretty broadly. These could be women who work on the Hill. They could work in government relations. They could work in a law firm that deals with political clients. And what we try to do is offer them a semester-long training on how to acquire the skills that would help them climb the career ladder in their own field. The third thing is research. We conduct research that is meant to inform the community and the academy about women in politics. So last year, right after Donald Trump was inaugurated, we did a national poll and we issued a report called The Trump Effect to assess the effects of the inauguration and Hillary Clinton's loss on political ambition. We track the Sunday morning shows and women's participation on them in what we call the Sunday morning monitor. And we regularly issue articles and op-eds and books about these topics. And then the final thing that we try to do is shape the national dialogue about women in politics. And we do that through a series of special events, through book signings. I'll speak to media outlets all the time. And together, all four of these activities are meant to convey that this is a really important topic, that the gender gap in political leadership still needs to be closed, and that women from all walks of life and men at all generations are important for beginning to close that gap. While the Institute is called the Women in Politics Institute, it's actually open to men. Of course. And some of our certificate recipients have actually been male students. On almost all of our panels, we've had men. Mm -hmm. When we've talked about male and female public opinion, we'll have pollsters from both sides of the aisle. We've never had a problem getting men. We often have men moderate conversations. And the goal is to make this very obviously not something that's relegated just to women. It shouldn't be this little thing where in the corner of the room the women go and they talk about what matters to them. It's to shape this national dialogue so that men, whether they're journalists or pollsters or pundits or authors themselves, are also aware of these kinds of issues and understand the gender dynamics in the political arena. Mm -hmm. What do you hear from your male students as it relates to this experience? Because many of them, in some cases, are taking a course on women in politics or a series of courses on women in politics, perhaps for the first time. That's right. I I mean, in my Women in Political Leadership class, which is a core course, so it's a semester-long course, I found that the students are often surprised that it's not so much about women's studies. So I think they come in thinking that this is going to be a feminist theory class or a class about women's experiences in society. It's a straight political science class where the main variable that we're interested in is either the sex of the candidate or the sex of the elected official or the sex of the voter and how gender plays a role there. So I think they're surprised, but pleasantly so. Okay, let's shift and talk about you personally and your career a bit more. You grew up in New York. 
Um, were your parents particularly interested in politics? I mean, that can be a big driver for a lot of people who pursue careers in politics or political science. What about you? So my recollection is that they were. My mother assures me that my father was and she was not, <laughs> although she's way more political now. I mean, it, um, but I remember having lawn signs up for mayoral candidates. I remember going with my parents to vote in the 1984 presidential election um, and, you know, pulling the lever. I was able to go in and that was pretty monumental because Geraldine Ferrara was running for the first time as vice president. So my recollection is that, yes, I remember in eighth grade, we had to do this political cartoon project where we had to find three or four political cartoons and write about them. It was during the Bush Dukakis election. And I still have mine because my mom, every single morning, and I would cut out the political cartoon from the local paper and write it up. And so instead of doing three or four, I must have done 50. So when she says, no, we weren't that political, I think she's the one that's misremembering. (laughs) Or maybe she thinks your definition of political is a little different. She might not have been running for office, but was interested in politics. Right. And now I'm actually trying to convince her to run for mayor of our town. She's going to retire soon. Why not? And she's heard me give these speeches a million times, and she knows that women are less likely to be recruited and they don't think they're qualified. And she said, no, 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 I'm not qualified. (laughs) What advice do you have for women who are considering uh, pursuing a career in academia? If you don't have the passion, don't do it. So it can be a very alienating, isolating experience. I think there's now been a move where collaboration is far more common. I've always worked with other people. So all of my big projects have been with somebody else. So it hasn't felt like I've been siloed or on my own doing anything. But I think it's very, very lonely, or it can be, if you're writing a book and no one else knows about what you're working on and you're just sitting there doing it every day and everything is Mm self-motivated, right? There are very few real deadlines. Once you get that academic job, until you come up for tenure, which is usually six years later, you're kind of just on your own. And that self-motivation can be really tricky, especially if you have perfectionist tendencies. Mm And so I would say if you're not totally passionate about that subject and if you're not willing to integrate yourself into circles where other people are passionate about that, then maybe it's not the best job because it. I, I think I've seen too many stories of people who haven't made it because they haven't been able to find that support system and you're kind of on your own to find it. So you've run for office once. Would you ever do it again? I would love to do it again. I thought I would do it again then. Except, as I mentioned, 2006 was a good year for Democrats. So they took back the House, which meant that the person that I was running against in the Democratic primary was more vulnerable when I ran against him than he ever would be again. And so I was planning on staying in Rhode Island and waiting for an electoral opportunity. And then I received the phone call asking if I would be interested in coming to AU to interview for this job. And it occurred to me that I could wait for an incumbent to retire or for a different electoral opportunity in Rhode Island and ultimately run for office again. Or in the meantime, I could come here and try to encourage hundreds of other people to run for office and do research that could be important to spur their activism. So I decided to do that, and we'll see what the future holds. That's great. So you're a Democrat. I am. Um, <laughs> which is obvious from the conversation. But you uh, you have to write your uh, materials and present them in a very balanced way. How do you achieve that? How do you remain... Uh, and, and check yourself, frankly. We all have bias, right? I think, And I think that's the sort of the trick is to acknowledge that you have a bias and then challenge yourself, right? So how do you, how do, you do that? Well, I've been very lucky because, and I put lucky in quotes, but the major findings that I've seen in my research, so the size of the gender gap in political ambition, the way women and men are treated on the campaign trail, generally are similar across party lines. 
And as a result, I haven't had to spend much time delving into party differences because there haven't been any. And the questions that I'm looking at are not policy related. So, you know, outside of work, yes, I'm ardently pro-choice and I'm giving to these organizations. I've never written anything about that because that's just not my area of inquiry. And so for me, it actually has not been that much of a challenge. What I will say is somewhat challenging is making sure that you're giving equal attention to issues on both sides. And so, for example, when Danny and I wrote the book Women on the Run, we did interviews with campaign managers for both Democrats and Republicans. And it was often the case that when I was interviewing campaign managers for Democrats, I was hearing them say things that I experienced when I ran for office and that I could immediately relate to and that I thought would make for great anecdotes. And when I was talking to campaign managers on the Republican side of the aisle, it felt more like research. And what was really important to us when we were writing the book is that we made sure that you could not tell when we were cutting and pasting from those interviews that one of us had been a Democratic candidate, right? Mm -hmm. And that we're pulling the same kinds of things that we're drawing on the same kinds of experiences and that we're not sort of perpetuating the party line on one side and not on the other. But it rarely comes up. Did you expect to find differences in women's political engagement from the left to the right when you originally embarked on this research? I thought that it was it would be possible that women on the Republican side of the aisle would be especially less likely to be interested in running because of conservative family values. But when I stepped back, when we didn't find the gender gap varying by party and we stepped back, it made sense because the women that we were looking at had already succeeded in a lot of male-dominated environments. So it might be the case that Republican women are less likely to become lawyers or business leaders or educators or activists in the first place because of some of those impediments. But by the time that we got to them and we were interested in their ambition and their role their role as potential candidates, they had already overcome a lot of the traditional barriers that might be more likely to hold Republican than Democratic women back. Um, on the campaign trail, I will say that some of the stories we expected to find differences and we didn't. So for example, we expected that the places that sexism would creep up, the unusual incidents would be more likely to be when you had a female Democrat and a Republican man running against each other. And we just didn't find that to be the case. Um, So we found across the board, men on both sides of the aisle on occasion are willing to be really hardcore card-carrying sexists. And that women on both (laughs) sides of the aisle were often willing to highlight their roles as women, giving them unique credentials. So we expected that on the Democratic side. We didn't necessarily expect that somebody like Martha McSally, the first female fighter pilot, would have integrated that so much into her campaign literature, but Mm -hmm. she did. So it was pretty eye-opening that people really campaign as candidates and not necessarily as women or men, and we see that on both sides. And you're seeing that increasingly where you see women on both sides of the aisle, but I I think to your point, it's it's even more, uh, somewhat more interesting to see Republican women running, um, but but, um, Representative McSally's recent ads about, I think she, I think the quote is grow a pair of ovaries or something along those lines, Mm -hmm. but really inserting gender in a much more direct way into her campaign. And there's a number of other examples. That was just the one that was really stark. Um, Is that, I mean, is that just an evolution? Does that surprise you? Some of it is an evolution where it's completely fine to call attention to 
gender if you think that you have an asset linked to it, right? So in 2010 or 2014, when she initially ran, she was in large part saying, look, elect me because I've been the only woman in a room of all men for a really long time and I have these experiences. I think part of what we're seeing now is this environment where highlighting that you're a woman might be all that it takes in a lot of these districts to set yourself apart from men behaving badly. You are about to go through a big career, tra- or not, not a career transition, but you're changing from American University to the University of Virginia. Um, those can be challenging, even when you make the decision to make the shift yourself. How do you think about transitions? How do you know when it's time to move on and, and, and try that next journey or that next opportunity? I, I don't. Um, I mean, I, it's a risk. But it seems like the right one. So when I went for the interview, I wasn't sure. A lot of it was going to come down to how I felt when I was actually there. I was open to the idea of a move, but I love Washington, D.C. And so it was going to have to feel really, really right. And within about 10 minutes, I knew. Uh, That was also the case when I graduated from Stanford and I was interviewing. And I went and I interviewed at Brown. And during the interview, I remember saying to the chair of the department, oh, my gosh, this is such a good fit. You don't have to pay me. Now, don't use those negotiating skills, I would say. But, um, you know, you just sometimes know. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm at a point in my life right now where so much of my work is collaborative with people who are not in the same building as me or even in the same location as me that the overwhelming majority of what I do on a day-to-day basis is not contingent on my location. So, so much of my job is going to stay exactly the same. Um, the location will be different and I'll miss DC a lot. Yeah. But, um, you know, I just, I think it's, I think it's time. It keeps you fresh. It makes you a better teacher, I think, when you experience different sets of students who have different experiences and different expectations and demands. And so I look forward to that. What do you see as your greatest accomplishment so far? I think calling attention to the gender gap in political ambition and the idea that we need to recruit women to run for office has been been really significant. There are a lot of organizations that exist largely because of that finding. There are a lot of political organizations that have changed the way that they do their work because of that research. And it's stunning to me that my dissertation ultimately played such an important role in how we encourage women to get involved in the process and ultimately in the prospects for political representation. How about greatest frustration? I think I'm still fighting this battle to let the political science community know that women in politics is a legitimate topic. And when I was in graduate school and I had decided that this is what I was going to do research about, I remember my dissertation committee looking at me with raised eyebrows, sort of saying, really? With this implicit view that I could do something so much more important. They've all come around, I think. I think they realized (laughs) that things turned out okay. But I mean, I, I get the sense and I've heard secondhand or thirdhand or through the grapevine, that for a lot of people, there still is the sense that, oh, well, if you're a real political science department, you wouldn't hire somebody who does women in politics. Or if you are really concerned about hiring the person that has the best publication record, you should discount the people that are doing that because journals have a quota that they want to publish women in politics work. And and none of that's true, obviously. But I would have thought that 15 years later, a lot of these battles within the discipline itself would have been further along. 
And, and I, I guess, you know, one element of success would have to be when this conversation is no longer needed. <laughs> but maybe it will always be needed. I yeah, well, I mean, think? well, so what I will say is that as long as we have party differences where there's such a lopsided ratio, so about 70% of the women who run for office run as Democrats, as long as that's still the case, we're going to continue to have this conversation. Because in order for there to be any semblance of gender parity, that would mean that Democrats would have to field 80% female candidates. And they're not going to do that. There would be an outcry from men at that point that maybe we've gone a little too far. Mm. And so I think the big challenge for the next 10 years is to figure out how to incentivize the Republican Party and not just sectors within it to place a premium on recruiting and electing women as well. Because unless both parties are going to be playing by the same set of normative rules, we, we can't ever achieve anything close to parity. One final question. What is your best advice or life hack? So I would say just do it. I know Nike has coined that, but I'll take it as my own. Um, I have never been... It's worked well for them. (laughs) I gave it to them. I I mean, I have never been somebody that has thought that it's not worth a shot. Now, amid the taking that shot, I'll often reconsider and think, oh my gosh, I don't know if we should finish or can I see this through the successful completion. But initially, taking that plunge has never been something that has scared me. And I would say that that's the best advice I could give because you don't even understand the opportunities that are out there or the people that you could potentially connect with if you don't throw yourself into that um, frying pan in the first place. And so I would say throw yourself in. That's great. Jen, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You are refreshingly authentic always, (laughs) and it's such a pleasure. It's great to have you here. Thank you. You can learn more about Jen on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast. There, we'll post show notes, including links to Jen's books, her bio, and some other great information. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we urge you to please leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.